Welcome to the Infertility Stress Podcast, where we talk about how to care for your mind and your nervous system during your fertility treatment process so you can spend less time second-guessing your own grief and more time living your life. I'm Michelle Kaffler, fertility acupuncturist, board-certified reproductive specialist, and mindset coach, and you've got episode 51. Hello, my dear. Thanks for being here with me today. And thanks for hanging out with me and Christina Vero. I'm going to share our conversation in just a minute. I also want to take a moment to apologize for the rain sounds that you're probably hearing, but our forecast says that we're going to rain all week here, every single day. So my podcast manager tells me that I need to do the episode today. So that's what we're doing, rain or shine. So apologies for the audio. Before I share my interview with Christina, I want to let you know about something really exciting that's happening next month. I'm going to be introducing a new way to work with me. If you've been thinking about working with me one-on-one, but you want more of a community feel, this is going to be exactly what you're looking for. And it's the best of both worlds. You get weekly opportunities to coach with me and you get to be part of a community of like-minded folks who are navigating the fertility experience and want to feel less anxiety and manage stress more effectively. The announcement for this will be happening in the coming weeks, and you will have the opportunity to be a founding member and get some special bonuses, including a discounted rate for the lifetime of the membership. The catch is that only the people on my email list will have this opportunity because that's how I'm going to be sending the info. This means that you're going to want to head to the show notes and sign up for my email list, which you can do by scrolling through down to the bottom of the show notes and clicking on sign up for Michelle's email list. Okay. So for this episode, I'm so excited to be sharing my interview with Christina Vero, a psychotherapist and friend of mine. She and I have known each other professionally for some time now, and we refer to each other. And a few weeks ago, I heard her on another podcast speaking about this concept of disenfranchised grief. And I wanted to have her on here to talk about this concept that I think is so important to acknowledge. Before I share the interview here, I want to read Christina's professional bio for you. Christina Vero is a registered psychotherapist and holistic nutritionist who is dedicated to helping people feel less stuck in life and reducing stigma overall. She honors this mission through providing psychotherapy and nutritional counseling at her wellness clinic, Fresh Insight, which offers support for people of all ages and backgrounds. Christina's determination to spread her knowledge and passion to others has allowed her clinic to help people nationally and internationally, and she has shared her expertise with a number of media outlets, including Flair, Canadian Living, Elle Canada, and a number of podcasts. When she isn't at work, she can be found knitting her 900th pair of socks and forcing attention on her cats, which is exactly why we like each other so much. So without further ado, here is my interview with Christina. All right. Hey, Christina, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So I read your professional bio in the introduction already. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure people know that, yes, I own a wellness clinic, Fresh Insight. I really love what I do. I feel really inspired by what I do, just seeing people's resilience and overcome some amazing things in life. Uh, Outside of work, I am a huge animal lover, obsessed with any animal on the planet. I love to knit. I love all things to do with health and wellness. So I feel like this podcast episode is really indulging that side of me today. 
Amazing. I love that you love animals and knitting. I didn't know these two things about you. So sometime you should come over to my little farm and meet my 24 chickens. Oh my gosh, I will be there. Absolutely. Yes. There recently I was thinking about getting a couple goats, but the partner vetoed it. And then I wanted a pig that got vetoed. So chickens maybe will be my next plea. Amazing. Love it. So we actually met each other professionally because we live in the same geographical area and I've referred patients to you and you've referred patients to me. And it's been really great to kind of professionally network a little bit. And I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. I actually heard you talking on another person's fertility podcast about this concept about disenfranchised grief. And I thought, wow, that concept can be so freeing and so empowering for people. And I really wanted to have you on here to chat about that. So let's just dive in. Do you want to tell us about disenfranchised grief and what is it? Yes. So disenfranchised grief is when our greater society does not honor a particular loss as being legitimate in quotes. And I feel like this perfectly applies to infertility because somebody can have a miscarriage and that might not actually be seen as a legitimate loss, or they might have a chemical pregnancy in a different way, or they might have a current child, but they lose a second. And that's sort of seen as like, oh, but at least you have this one other child. It applies to other domains too. Like I notice as well with dementia, for example, I would say that that's in its own way, a form of disenfranchised grief where somebody's still physically present, but you've actually experienced a massive loss of that person's spirit and their who they are as a person and how they show up or loss of a pet. Sometimes people will lose an animal and people are just like, why are you so upset about losing your bunny? And again, me as an animal lover and also a psychotherapist is like crying for them because I'm so upset about it. But with infertility, I think it's a perfect example of disenfranchised grief. Yeah, it's so applicable. And it's interesting to look at kind of the larger cultural context of the things that we think are worth being upset about and the things that we, and I mean, the royal we is in collective society is in what's worth being upset about and what's not. And it really is a deeply personal thing. And at the end of the day, if you're upset about something, you have every right to be upset about something. If you're grieving, you have every right to grieve something. And who is somebody else to tell you what you should and shouldn't be upset about? I know. I know. I Well, that's exactly how I see it. But what's so fascinating to me is that if you think about the types of loss that our society does recognize, which is primarily the loss of a physical human being, there's all these traditions around it. There are all these rituals. And I think that really helps with processing emotionally and mentally. When you have something that is not acknowledged in the same way, I think that leads to a lot of confusion and inner turmoil about this huge thing has happened. I've lost something so important to me, but I just kind of go on living my life as if nothing occurred. And how confusing that must be for somebody. Yeah, definitely. And it totally makes sense because we still exist in this modern cultural context where women are told explicitly and implicitly that they shouldn't be emotional, that they shouldn't take up space, that they shouldn't talk about their bodily functions, that they shouldn't talk about what they're going through. And so, of course, people are private about it and don't want to talk about it. And of course, when they do talk about it, people are like, oh, I don't want to hear about that. So, it totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yes. I was just talking to somebody about that. They're going through an IVF journey and they need lots of hormone injections. And they were emotional, obviously. This is a very tumultuous process. And somebody was like, yeah, you know, whenever that happens to me, I always look back and say, oh, why was I being so silly and emotional? And they were like, 
no, I actually think it's okay that I'm being emotional. Like, do I really need to justify that? You know? Yeah, 100%. So when somebody's going through this disenfranchised grief, what are some of the emotions that they might experience? For sure, I think confusion, as I talked about, of, okay, I'm so upset, and yet it feels like the world is spinning as per usual. What the hell do I do with that? Anxiety of, okay, what what now? What does this mean about what happened to me? I also think, though, a great deal of shame. Because if there's, in my opinion, shame and silence are best friends. I say that to a lot of people I work with. So if you're ashamed about something and there's no sense of community around it, then that's just going to fully feed into that feeling of shame. So I think that's a really, really big one too, especially for women. There's a sense of my body betraying me, not doing what it's supposed to do in quotations, You know that whole narrative of why am I not able to do this thing that I've been told I should do for so many years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those thoughts are so common in my clinical practice. I hear that almost every day that I'm in clinic. Why can't my body just do the one thing that it's quote unquote supposed to do? So it makes a lot of sense that somebody would experience shame, especially if it's being told by society that it's quote unquote not worth being upset about. Like yes. I've heard even people's care providers, they'll come in and they'll be like, well, my family doctor wouldn't even acknowledge that they wouldn't even call it a miscarriage. They were like, oh, it's just a chemical pregnancy. No big deal. Like their doctor would even say, well, that's not even a, it doesn't even count as a miscarriage, but that doesn't mean that the grief isn't there. And if their doctor's there basically shaming them for having those thoughts and feelings about their experience, it just contributes and compounds the whole thing. I would assume. Oh, absolutely. I I honestly find infertility to be very traumatizing when I think of how I define trauma, it's something that goes against or questions your ideas about yourself, other people in the world. So you have this trifecta of, oh my gosh, what the heck? Everything that I thought was true is not. The second part of trauma is it can injure your actual nervous system. So everything that you do thereafter, you might have this huge hypervigilance about your body or how it's reacting, or am I going to be able to get pregnant again? This feeling of anxiety that follows you everywhere. So your, your actual physiology, which I'm sure you can speak to as well, just based on what you do, changes when you've had something so traumatic happen, where it's just not going to feel the same in your body. Yeah, for sure. And as we know, infertility can be a marathon more than a sprint. So if somebody's done IVF cycle after IVF cycle after IVF cycle, and they're being re-traumatized and re-traumatized, I mean, I ta- I've been talking a lot about burnout and infertility as of late, and that can definitely accumulate and just kind of chip away at somebody's emotional resilience. Oh my gosh. Yes. And so understandably, it is something that hits you emotionally, psychologically, relationally, financially, physically, it really can hit every area. Yeah. So what is your role as a therapist for somebody coming to you for mental health support when it comes to helping somebody work through this disenfranchised grief? I think providing language is a huge one just to have a name for their experience and also to honor it as a loss and to make a safe space as simple as that may sound to some listeners a lot of people actually don't have that safe space. And I'm sure you can recognize that too. I feel like you're probably part-time psychotherapist in your job, but... A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, people coming in and they've been brushed off by not only family members, not only friends, but also health professionals like you alluded to. And for somebody to say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry this happened to you. You can just feel that 
being seen and heard goes such a long way. And especially coming back to that point about silence and shame, when you can actually give somebody a space to share their story out loud and how that has impacted them and have somebody say, I believe you and I honor that is super powerful and healing if you've never, ever heard that. So part of it is holding space and also space for the emotions that are not particularly pretty. You know, there's a lot of emotion somebody can have, like if their best friend becomes pregnant the next day and they come in and they're like, I am so pissed off. And yeah, there is room for that too. There's no judgment about looking at something that you want so badly, having this horrible journey and saying, oh my gosh, I have jealousy just coursing through my veins because that just feels like a slap in the face. A hundred percent. And then there's almost this thing that gets layered on top of that. Not only is this person thinking, I'm so jealous, I'm so upset. I hate that this person in my life is getting this thing that I want seemingly in a much easier way. But then there's also this self-judgment piece that comes out where they're like, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm a bad friend. I'm a bad sister. I'm a bad person for even having these thoughts and feelings in the first place. And that creates a lot of shame too. Oh yeah. I I came up with this concept called the self-awareness staircase. And I actually draw out a little staircase and I say on the bottom step is your raw emotion. So it's your, it's your anger. The next step is your judgment about that emotion. So what does it say about me that I'm feeling so angry? And then the next step is, well, why am I so judgmental of myself when I feel angry about the fact that I'm upset? You know, the further away you get from that bottom stair, the more that you're not tending to any emotion that you're actually having. And you're just adding all of this gasoline to this fire that's already so big to begin with. And what difference it would make to just say, okay, I'm angry. And that is allowed. It's also not going to be here forever. It also doesn't define me as a person just because you have an emotion or a nasty thought doesn't define you. I always say it's your behaviors that define you for the most part, not what you're thinking. If that were true, we would all be in a lot of trouble. A hundred percent. And I love that staircase analogy. It's such a powerful visual representation of what goes on in people's brains. So thank you. I might um I might talk about that again. That's we'll have to have you back to talk about the staircase at some point. It's yeah, I know, right? Like it, it's once you start recognizing it, there's so many times in a day where I'm like, oh, I'm on like stair number four. Can I come back to stair number one just for myself? A hundred percent. And even that question is so powerful. Like, where am I and can I come back to a place of kind of point zero before I spin off into stair 17. Yes, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So let's say somebody's listening and they're thinking, okay, yeah, that's me. I'm definitely experiencing that. Or I'm a little traumatized from having experienced that in the past. What are some ways that a person can cope with having that disenfranchised grief experience? Mm -hmm. Recognizing yourself that this is a loss is really important, I think, and finding a way to honor that. I believe there's many ways that you can do that that are really personal to the individual. So some people will plant a garden and that's their way of doing it. Some people will keep a memory box of ultrasound pictures or appointment slips or whatever it happens to be, and they will either bury it. Some people will burn stuff because it actually feels better for them. I think it's really individualistic, but having something that similarly to a funeral you go to a funeral because you're saying, okay, this is an acknowledgement that something I've lost something, that my pain is okay. And that now I can move through life holding that with me, however long that takes. So, so doing something to honor your loss, I think is hugely important. Finding people that you can actually trust, whether that is a friend or a parent or a therapist or an acupuncturist, whatever it happens to be, just a space where you feel like you can say all the bad things that really aren't so bad. 
and feel like you won't be judged for it. I'm, I'm a huge fan of support groups. We offer one, but you don't have to come to ours. Any support group where you feel like there are other people who I don't have to explain myself to can be really, really healing. Yeah. Just being around other people who get it or perhaps get it from a clinical perspective that just speak the language and understand the medical side of things of what somebody's going through. That can be everything. Yeah. I also want to ask if somebody's listening who is a loved one of somebody who's going through infertility and they recognize that maybe the person hasn't been supported in their grief, what can somebody's loved one do to support their person going through this? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. I often think so much of the time when we are sitting with somebody who's sad, we have a lot of our own anxiety come up because it's like, how do I take away their sadness? I believe that question sets everybody up for failure <laughs> because now you have put, put this huge burden on yourself that you're going to take away their grief, which is not your job. And the other person feels like they can't have their grief, which is a very natural response. If somebody weren't grieving after they've lost something, that's actually pretty abnormal, right? So take that off the table of nobody needs to take away anybody's grief. Nobody needs to take away anybody's emotion. It's more so how I like to picture, I know nobody can see me, but like holding with my arms out, like giving them a hug for all those emotions to be there. So I'm just holding this nice little safe space of whatever you want to put in that area, you're allowed to put there. If you want to put anger there, cool. If you want to put sadness there, that's fine. And just just be open and really, really curious. I really wish we could ask more questions when people are upset <laughs> rather than feeling like, have you tried this? Or, you know, it'll get better or it's going to be okay, which sometimes does feel comforting to hear. But sometimes when you're upset and somebody says, oh my gosh, like what is, what's been the hardest part for you? And you just get a, a little bit of a space to speak what's true in your heart is huge. Yeah. So I'm hearing no fixing. We don't yeah. need to solve the problem, but also asking questions and being curious and letting the person just have whatever they need to have in that moment can really make a difference. Yeah. And don't also, I mean, this is something I've learned as a therapist. Don't be afraid to name when something's very difficult. Sometimes if people are upset, I'll just say that sounds absolutely horrific. And you might think, oh my gosh, I'm not doing anything or should I really say that? But it can be so validating when somebody is like, yeah, thanks. It actually is awful. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's it's kind of our first immediate and probably sometimes unconscious reaction to just want to, you know, fix somebody's pain because we're taught from childhood, oh, don't cry or we shouldn't cry. And we shouldn't have emotions. And so, of course, it makes sense that we would go there immediately. But yeah, if we can take a step back and just allow them to be where they need to be. And, you know, very regularly in clinic, I'll say, yeah, that really sucks. And they're like, yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I think that's really powerful. And at the same time, I guess I'm thinking about this from the other end. I also think when we're grieving or going through something difficult, it's important to remember that that's not the other person's intention. If they're problem solving, it's probably not to make us feel bad. It's just that they're doing the best with what they know and thinking this is helpful. It doesn't make it any easier for you on the receiving end, but it's well-intended most of the time. 
Yeah, of course. So we touched on this a little bit earlier where I mentioned, and you mentioned people's care providers kind of dismissing their grief a little bit. So do you have any advice for people in that situation? So again, I'm thinking of people specifically who go into their family doctor and they say, well, I've had a chemical pregnancy or I had a miscarriage at five weeks or four weeks and their doctor kind of almost corrects them like, well, that's not a miscarriage. It's it's just a chemical pregnancy. Any tips for kind of advocating for themselves emotionally in that moment? Or do they even need to do that? Maybe they can just kind of compartmentalize and go on their way and deal. What do you think is is best in a situation like that? Oh, gosh. Yeah. I My feelings about advocacy is that I worry that sometimes when people take on an advocacy role for themselves through something difficult, that they feel like they have to do it every single day and that that actually becomes a job that stresses them out. So whenever I'm working with somebody who's brave enough to be an advocate about infertility, miscarriages, all of these things, I try to also give them permission to take some days off. Like you take days off from work. So you sometimes if you're like, actually, that was super offensive, but I do not have the steam to correct that health professional today. That doesn't mean you're a bad advocate. It's that's a form of self-care that day. I also think it's totally legitimate to say to a doctor that actually it's very difficult to hear because I'm going through a lot and this has been a real loss for me. Right or wrong, this has been a loss for me. So I like the I like saying right or wrong before things because it takes this question of who's correct completely out of the picture, which is where a lot of the times we can get stuck. And interestingly, as a health professional, what I find very useful is going to appointments where I am on the other side of things, like going to a doctor's appointment, going to an acupuncture appointment, going to a therapist, because you remember, oh man, it's actually different when you're on the other side of things. And it's very humbling. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Well, that's really good advice. And I love that there's kind of that element of choice of if you don't have the capacity to do what you think is quote unquote, the right thing to do as an advocate. And again, I'm saying that with quotey fingers. <laughs> yeah. If you don't have the capacity to do that today, it doesn't mean that you can't do it at some point when you're feeling like you do have capacity or at all ever. I mean, yeah. The best thing is, is just to know that you have that choice. But also in the moment, if you have the capacity to say, this isn't right, or this is what I'm experiencing right now. And just letting the doctor know, because it's an education for the health professional too. Most yeah. of us, again, especially those of us, those of us who are socialized as women will go through these experiences and just not feel like they have the right to say anything or give feedback or push back. Oh man, it's so true. And I have full respect for what doctors do, obviously, but I also feel like a lot of people really take what they say as fact to the point of putting their own needs second. And I really wish that weren't how things always worked. Like if you have questions, that's what a doctor is there for. If you need to give them professional feedback of actually that was really hurtful, that's allowed. So just know that you have the right to do that. Yeah. And I would say that most of the doctors that I've met are totally open to that feedback. Like they they care about their patients, obviously. And that's why they got into the profession to begin with in most cases. And so if they've done something to make you feel a certain way or that, you know, didn't sit well with you, I'd say in most cases they want to know, again, if you have the capacity to do that that day or at all. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So I understand that you have some resources that are available to people, um, both in the context of being a resident of Ontario, where we live, and also for, I think, people outside of Ontario. Is that correct? Do you yeah. want to tell us a little bit about your offerings? 
Sure. So we have started offering two support groups for people going through infertility. So one is for people who are directly going through or have gone through that experience. So you can come with one of our psychotherapists. She's trained in trauma. She's a expert in it. She's absolutely lovely. Her name is Rachel Sunda. So there is a place where you can meet with people who who really get it. And you can also learn some tools about what can I do to help myself out on these not so great days. And we have another group that's for friends and family or just loved ones, partners, anything of people going through infertility, because sometimes there's not really a space for them also. And they can feel like, well, I'm also going through a lot of stuff, but I don't want to make my partner or my friend or my daughter or brother's life, whatever, any worse. And so it gives them a little bit of an outlet to share their experience. So we have those two. Also, just if you need individual or couples therapy, which I really could see as being a huge resource when you're going through infertility or in many other instances in life, to be honest, but we also do offer individual and couples therapy at our practice, Fresh Insight. Okay, amazing. And just to confirm, the individual therapy, is that available to Ontario residents only or is that to anybody around the world? So it depends on your state law. So you'll have to reach out to us and then we have to look at our code of ethics and the code of ethics of your state. But most of the time, if they're well aligned, then we can work together. So we'll have to just have that conversation. But Zoom has opened up an amazing world of connecting internationally for us when it's ethically sound to do so. So that's been really, really cool. That's been a really fun chapter at Fresh Insight. Perfect. And then are your support groups, both for the person themselves and then their partner or family or loved ones, are those open to anybody? Yep, they are. Okay, awesome. And then if somebody wants to follow you online or find you, where can they find you on the World Wide Web? Yeah. So our website is fresh-insight.ca. And then you can also follow us on Instagram and TikTok. Both of those are at Christina Vero. So Christina with a K and then V-I-R-R-O. Amazing. Christina, thank you so much for coming on today. I think that people are going to get a lot out of this episode and, you know, get some good feelings from it. Good. Thank you for having me and for a good combo. So that was my interview with Christina Vero. Isn't she amazing? If you're looking for a therapist to support you through your fertility treatment process, I highly recommend reaching out to her. She's a lot of resources for folks needing support. And also be sure to follow her on social media. Her posts are amazing and have so much good info. You can scroll the show notes and find all of her info there easily. And before you go, do be sure to sign up for my email list, which is where I will be announcing the big news about my upcoming membership. You're just going to scroll down into the show notes and click on the button there. That's going to be it for me this week. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, you've got this, my dear.